Hey there, SLP. You are listening to this podcast, so I know that you love to listen to podcasts. And if that is the case, then I know that you are going to love my secret private podcast, Secondary Secrets for SLPs. It's six short episodes that will have you walking away feeling refreshed and inspired and ready to take on those challenging secondary speech students. So if you work with grades four through 12 and are in a planning rut or wanting some fresh new ideas to keep your students motivated, make sure you head to speechtimefun.com slash secondary secrets. You are not going to find this podcast in your iTunes podcast search browser. You can only get access by going to that link. So head to it now. It is six short episodes that you can listen to it in under an hour, like totally Netflix binge-worthy. I made this just for you, and I know you are going to love it. SLPs have been telling me already that it has changed their way for working with their older speech students. So head on over, again, to speechtimefund.com slash secondarysecrets, or use the link in the show notes, and I can't wait to hear what you think. Now let's head on to this week's episode of SLP Coffee Talk. You are listening to SLP Coffee Talk. I am your host, Hallie Sherman, and I am a licensed speech-language pathologist who is in the trenches working full-time in a public school in New York. I am the author of the blog and Teachers Pay Teachers store, Speech Time Fun, where I love helping other SLPs conquer the overwhelm and get back hours spent on prepping activities. I am here to help you be the best SLP you can be and have fun while doing it. Just like your morning cup of coffee, this podcast is just what you need to start the day or week. Let's jump into today's Coffee Talk. Hey, hey, and welcome to another episode of SLP Coffee Talk. I'm excited to have back on the show Miss Maureen Wilson from the Speech Bubble SLP, who is not only my go-to person when I have questions about SMART goals, rubrics, behavior, but she's also my fellow co-host of the Speech Retreat. And if you're listening to this when it airs, you just a couple weeks ago saw us presenting at the Speech Retreat. So you know how awesome this Maureen is. So Maureen, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Hallie. It's always so much fun to be back here. I know we're filming this a little early, but then I'm going to be sad I didn't get to have more time with you at Speech Retreat. I know. It's so fun to like meet my fellow TPT, SLP <laughs> blogger people in real life. We've actually like had a glass of wine together. Like we've seen oh, yeah. each other in real life. We're real people. A glass. We've had several drinks. <laughs> okay, sorry, several drinks. Okay, let's, let's, but it's let's, like, you're real people. We are real people. In case anyone is not familiar with you, explain a little bit about your SLP journey and how you got here today. So I have been a school-based SLP from the get-go. I've actually been at the same building since I graduated. It's been my first and only job <laughs> and I love it. It's home now. So picturing somewhere else would be really tough to do. But sitting there after a while, and then my husband's law enforcement, so he works crazy hours, spent a lot of nights by myself. And I figured TPT would probably be more fun to do than talking to my dogs. So started all that, and then it entered into this whole other realm of operating that I never really thought. I thought, oh, this is just going to be fun. And it still is, but now it's so much more. So now I've really found my passions of literacy-based therapy and data and language therapy and kind of helping other SLPs harness the power 
of those tools so that their therapy is effective and engaging and they're not spending hours figuring out what to do, but teaching them these tools and how they can just save their time, get the information they need and watch their kids grow. So, so true. And that's why I'm so excited to have you here to talk all about goals because that could be an area where people are very not confident and unsure and they overthink and spend way too many hours just pondering what goals to write where versus just picking something and being confident or having the tools in place to make those confident decisions. So let's talk about first, like, why is it important to have a baseline when it comes to writing goals? I'm so glad that you started with that. It actually was just a huge discussion in an SLP Facebook group was the importance of baselines. Everybody's like, oh, your first session, that's your baseline, but it shouldn't be. And a lot of time people are confused by that because they're like, how am I supposed to get data on something I haven't done yet? Well, you pick the goal because you assess them. You've done a screening or you've seen they've achieved a goal and this is the next natural progression. So you should already have data on that before you know you have that first session with it. So a lot of the times IEP systems will require you to enter it in with the goal. Others won't. And if they don't, it should go in your present levels. It's been more of a push recently. And I think it's because the legality of it all, a lot of school systems are trying to make sure all their IEPs and want to have, you know, the legal I's dotted and T's crossed. They so yes, baselines always, you know, before they were never really talked about. I know at my grad school, I don't think we really talked about them very much, but that was, you know, what, 12 years ago, 13 years ago. And I find often SLPs in the schools, our supervisors are not SLPs. They might be like a, a regular principal or you might have a special director who's a special ed teacher who isn't familiar with speech jargon and protocols like gathering a baseline. So no one's asking it of you. So you almost come complacent. So I think sometimes too, especially if you know, you're a grad student or this is your CFY, you might not necessarily be with an SLP in your building. You might be the only one in your SLP as a, your supervisor is an SLP in another building. They're not there to go down the hall and be like, can I pick your brain about this? Or to walk you through all of that because you know, as we do go on with our jobs, things just become natural and second nature. And you don't think, oh, I need to make sure this new person understands we do a baseline. And I think some of it comes on the supervisor side. You don't want to insult them. You don't want to be like, you don't know what a baseline is. But you know, you want to be like, I know you're confident. You don't want to insult them with what we consider might be basic knowledge or make them feel that they should know something that they don't when it's not their fault. They're starting out. You know, we spend so much time in clinic and clinic compared to doing the job, we all know are like two separate worlds. What would you recommend to someone who says, like, what materials do you use for baseline? Do I need to buy a million of things on teachers pay teachers just to gather baseline on my suit? Like, what would you recommend to someone? I would recommend one or two things. Either just get a set of screeners. I have, I have screeners in my TPT store. If <laughs> just get a good screener that is pretty comprehensive and gives you a nice full picture so you can see where those struggles and challenges are if you're like, what goals do I write next? Or look at the goals you have. Have they been achieved or not? And if they have, what's the next natural step with that? And I've just taken a post-it with five questions, asked my kid, there's my baseline. I can enter that into the IEP as I'm writing it. It does not have to be fancy. It just needs to be giving you that information. Totally. I've taken like this, an article of like New Zealand or something oh, yeah. that I think the students can do and just probed a whole bunch of different types of questions just to gather some sort of information to go with. Sometimes we inherit a student 
right? Like, and you don't even know where to begin. Oh yeah. So what would you recommend to someone who's in that boat? When we inherit students, sometimes they can come with a lot of goals. Sometimes they can come with very confusing goals. And if you're reading their goals or you're working with them for a time or two, and you're like, Hey, I don't even understand what this goal is trying to target. If you can call that SLP, call them, they'll tell you, and you can write it out. So you know what it means. Mm -hmm. And you're taking data on the right thing. If you can't get a hold of them, do your best, ask your fellow SLPs around, like, does anyone understand this? And then adjust the best you can. And if you try and target it, so you're like, maybe it's this. And you're like, they have it. You can do an amendment and you can readjust things to better fit them and <laughs> fit things accurately. So, so true. How many goals do you recommend? Oh, this is fun. <laughs> so first thing I want to stipulate goals versus like objectives and benchmarks. When people say goals, I perceive that as being like every like objective, every single skill that is in the IEP, you're going to target and take data on. I know some people when they hear goals, they think of your annual goal and that there's at least two objectives underneath. But for the sake of our purposes today, I'm just going to talk about each skill. And I know in some states, like in New York, where you are, you only write annual goals. Only annual goals. We only write benchmarks for preschool or life skills. And I'm so. in Illinois. And in my district, I know some districts operate differently. We have, here's our annual goal. And here's your objectives, benchmarks, whatever may have you. So I've kind of noticed over the years, initially when I was like out of the gate from grad school, I'm like, I have to fix everything and I have to fix it now. I totally wrote IEPs that had like seven, eight objectives because I didn't know any better. I was taught in grad school, you see the problem, you write the goal for it, you work on it. Mm -hmm. I was never told, okay, let's pump the brakes here and think about this for a mm -hmm. second. So for me, I think about, you know, you have a calendar year or calendar school year really to work on these things. You're only going to see the kid, we'll say an average of twice a week. Mm -hmm. If they're in a group, say they're in a group for 30 minutes, you're not working with them for 30 minutes. They're getting maybe once you take, you know, walking up the stairs and whatnot, 10 minutes of your time. So you have to kind of take all that into consideration time-wise of how much you can effectively work with them when you're writing your goal. And when you take all that time, that's not a lot of time. So if you have a lot of goals to work on, they're going to get less and less and less time, which means you're going to see less and less and less progress because to cycle through them all is going to take forever if you're only seeing them twice a week. So my philosophy is I like to have no more than four, maybe five objectives if it's for speech sounds, mm -hmm. because then typically you have to break them apart. But language-wise, I like to cap it at about four objectives because that way I have time to work on everything. But I've also narrowed it down to writing my goals for the root of the problem, not the symptom. Mm. So if I'm seeing they're having trouble with vocabulary, well, I'm going to go to the language processing hierarchy and see, can they label? Can they do functions, association, categories? If they can't do categories, vocabulary is going to be way out of their grasp yet. And so I'm going to go and see where that falls. But for me, the more severe the student, the less objectives I have, because you need to spend more time working on whatever base skill it is that will more or less branch over into those other areas. Some people are like, what? Less goals? Because us as SLPs, we are people pleasers and we, and we want to fix everyone. Right. You know, we went into this field to make a difference. And when you have that child sitting in front of you who is struggling academically and the teachers are like, help me, help me, help me. Mm -hmm. They can't do this. They can't do this. They can't do this. And you're like, well, I can fix that. And we have to get into that mindset of just because they mastered that goal doesn't mean they're cured. Right. Exactly. It means that that skill has been, you know, that foundation is in there. They have that skill to build on another. 
And I think so many times, like you said, like we have, I feel like SLPs have like the biggest hearts ever. You know, you have to in this field and you don't come into this field unless, like you said, you want to make that difference. And we see the struggles and you can assess a kid. You write down everything that they bombed and you're like, oh, well, shoot, that's the whole test. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, well, I have to fix this all. And it's like, no, you can work on everything. But if you address the right things, other things will just fall into place naturally. So you don't have to work on it all necessarily. And you don't have to work on it all right now. They have an IEP for three years. There's a reason. Break things out. Look at things by skill in terms of acquisition when they should have had certain skills too and use that as a starting point. But I also like to use my notes section in the IEP, just saying if they achieve XYZ goals, we will introduce and I might put two of those other areas that they had difficulty with on there. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times parents like to see that too because they're like, okay, there is a plan if something is achieved. And it's also a nice placeholder for you. So when the next IAP comes and you're like, crap, what was I going to work on next? You can just go back and look there. I like that idea. And if those of you that don't like me, I don't have that ability in the IEP system, but I can do that. Like I have like a folder for every student. I could put that like right. a, like a post-it. A post-it. That is a post-it, you know, because guess what? When you're done with it, you rip it up. No one will That's know it right. ever existed. But they're just <laughs> going to think you're a genius. So, so true. So keep that in mind, everyone, that these are annual goals and right. annual objectives. Like you're not expected to be working on answering inferential questions all year long. What are some building blocks they need to get mm-hmm. there and start that in September, start that in March, start that and keep going up and up. And then eventually you're expecting and hoping that they'll be able to respond to those inferential right. questions by June, by May, whenever your year ends. <laughs> right. I'm so glad you brought that up. I was actually just talking about that with somebody else. It kind of comes into that taking data part of it all. So, you know, they're working on inferencing, but you need to start by having them understand different emotions that they're going to pick up from text, that they're going to pick up from pictures and what that tells us and those clues. So you have to backtrack. So some people will inadvertently start taking data on that. That's not what your goal says. You need to take data on your goal. And if that's to answer inferential questions, then you need to start your session with, here's a picture, ask five different inferential questions, mark your stuff down, move forward with your emotion session. That's what you're taking data for, not their ability to tell you the emotion or what this emoji is looking like. So I think some people kind of forget that. They just kind of get tally happy. And that's why we don't need to be taking data the entire session. We need to be teaching. Oh, yeah. So take the data on that end goal. And that's where the anecdotal data comes in. Like that's something Mm -hmm. you can just write next to it. Like, hey, Johnny started making progress, understanding the emotions. And that's something you can remember for the next time when you're planning a session might be able to work on a different type of hidden meaning type of something because right. they're grasping the emotions. Right. You don't need to be putting that they grasp the emotions five out of 10 times unless that was your goal. Right. If that's your goal, totally different. But what I like to do is I'll start a session with you know raw data. Here's my five or your 10 or whatever, depending on how many kids you have or the skill and you move on. You don't need to dwell on data. Mm-hmm. Um, I think sometimes they need to feel like I have to have more data to prove I'm a good SLP. And that is not the case at all. More data does not mean you're a good SLP. It does not make you better than the SLP at the other school. It just means you have more data. You have more data. that's not necessarily <laughs> doing your student any good because what's the time it's taking you to take that data versus teaching and working with your student? Because um, how would you feel if we were taking the proxies every single day? I'd cry. Or like, oh, what if our administrator was like watching over us and doing like a formal observation every single day? No. We would sense that pressure and our students sense it too. And they're not going to... Mm-hmm be willing to take those risks if they feel like they're being judged every five seconds. I know. It's like, oh my gosh, like just thinking of being evaluated right now with my principal sitting there, I'm like, 
by the time they leave, I'm like, I need to go like change my shirt because I've sweated through it. <laughs> and, and it's like, no matter how, uh, how, like how many years you're in the field and you, you're confident in your craft, oh, yeah. like, you never know what they're going to say. You know, <laughs> it could be like the thing that like, you know, I am like the bomb at and I'm going to sit there and I'm probably going to flub it up because I'm, I know they're watching me. Mm-hmm. So, and that's what a lot of it comes to. Your kids aren't stupid. They know what you're doing. They see you tallying or they see you doing something. And that's why it's just get it done, get it quick, move on, put your data stuff away. Can you give some tips on language of goals and like simplifying it and things like that? Oh, yes, I can. So we've all heard of the SMART goal framework. You know, we always want to make sure we hit those points to make our goals as concrete as possible. You know, they're specific, they're measurable. They're attainable. They're relevant. They have a time parameter put in there. And it's kind of a personal preference for me. I don't like to write trial-based goals because then what you'll see is like student will produce R three out of four times for three out of five sessions. And it's like, what? They got to do what? When now? That's, that is too much going on there. I prefer just nice, clear percentage data if the goal calls for that. But you know, watching your wording, if you have to write an example in your goal, then you need to go and refine your goal. It should be clear. If you have to write a goal and put a little parentheses example with it, then it's not clear. If you're doing it because you need certain things targeted, put that in your notes or like if you can't use your notes Mm -hmm. like you, Hallie, then just put it in a parentheses under the goal there because those are specific targets that you need that you're tracking for. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking at it and you're like, okay, here's what I need to do. I'm going to put an example so that someone knows. I got to change that because we need to write them A, with parents in mind. So our speechy jargon, it's like, you know, these aren't up for a Nobel prize. They don't need to be super sound, super scientific and sophisticated. Like we know the person writing it is a professional and has an amazing education. No, this does not qualify you for anything less. This is just saying what they need to work on. So keeping it parent friendly in terms of writing. What advice would you give to someone who it's the end of the year or the end of the term, whatever, when they're writing new goals and their student hasn't mastered the previous goal? So if you're coming to the end and you're, you know, if you're looking at your student, they didn't meet their goal. Okay. Why? Was it too hard? Was it too complicated? Were there too many levels? Was there not enough prompting? Was there not enough support in it? Look why they didn't need it. And you can either take a step back because A, are they missing a prerequisite? You need to take the time and fill in. Like if you're looking at the language processing hierarchy and you were working on categories and they didn't get it and you're like, well, let me probe for associations real quick. And you're like, oh, they don't have that prerequisite. So if they can't make that comparison, then how are they even going to get this larger one? So looking at that is always important. And also have someone proofread your goal. If you're writing it and you're like, I think this is asking what I want it to have a friend read it and you can black out their name if you need to, or if they're in your building, even if it's a SPED teacher, you know, they write goals. They're not strangers to this process Mm -hmm. and ask them like, do you understand what this is asking? And if they say no, you got to you know do a little tweaking. Mm -hmm. I had to tweak stuff all the time. I have people proofread my stuff all the time because I want to make sure it makes sense. So, so true. And just like we need our goals and IEPs to be parent-friendly, we need to keep in mind that we might not be the person working with that child next year. They might move. Another speech therapist might take on that case. So 
what advice would you give to someone who tends to write goals about the EET or story grammar marker or some other programs and things like that? I have some advice that I'm very happy to share about that. Don't do it. (laughs) We should never write a goal for a specific program or a specific device in mind. You can describe what that program is, but you should never put it in the goal. If that program doesn't end up working well for that student, they're stuck with it until the next IAP because you've put it in there. Not all kids respond to the same. You might have a student who did great with the EET. You're like, yes, this is amazing. I'm going to put it for all my kids. Your next kid is like, it does not click with them. So you need to think of something different. But for your goal, this is how you got to track your data. And it's not going to be a good reflection of their skill. So don't write anything specific. The same with AAC devices. You know, you put like a voice output device and, you know, there's certain jargon in terms that you use to keep it, you know, understandable, but you're not naming names. Mm -hmm. So story grammar marker, you can put, you know, a narrative element resource or something along those lines. I felt lines. like key story elements. So they will like, yeah. call key story elements in sequential or whatever. Morgan right. right. And I know that's like sometimes people fall into that, like key story elements. Like what does that mean for certain people? And that is like, you know, I, I know you say you can't, don't put examples, but that's when you'd put parentheses. Key story elements are character settings, something like that. If it's something that you, terminology that you understand, you can't always assume the other SLP knows it. They might know story grammar and they're like, is this the same thing? I don't know. That's so helpful. What advice can you give about some data collection and making sure they're tracking goals appropriately? Now, this is the part that really makes my heart happy. So when we're looking at goals and tracking data, a lot of us, you know, we're used to that traditional plus minus, that tally data. You know, everyone's got their own little processing. It's a plus with a circle means they got it wrong or as a prompt. Everyone's got their method. But like I said before, you need to make sure you're taking data on that specific goal and, you know, not the method you're teaching. So I use a swivel scheduler when I'm tracking plus minus data. It rotates the goals into my schedule so I don't have to worry about missing them. It makes my planning so much faster, but it calculates and graphs the data for me. So when we're taking that plus minus data, we're doing it with a purpose to plot and track their progress. And for me, I'm such a visual person. If I can just click a button and see the trend line and see how things are going, If it looks like a Richter scale, I'm like, okay, something's not looking right here. But if I see a nice trend line going up with that, I can know I'm at least on the right path here. Mm -hmm. So when we're taking that plus minus data, just do it in the beginning, get it fast, get it done and move on. But we're doing it to track their progress. Like I said, I use Swivel, save my sanity so much. And Um, links to everything will be in the show notes and not to worry, guys. Yes. (laughs) You you too can be sane with data. What advice would you give to someone who says, well, I have a group of five. Like what are the other kids doing while I'm collecting data on Johnny's ability to formulate a complete sentence? (laughs) So if you're in a mixed group like that, then, you know, you can rotate maybe one day a week is day to day and you know, Mondays. And that's when everybody's, cause if you have five kids and you spend, you know, five questions on a kid, sometimes that can take five minutes, depending on your student, that's your whole session. And maybe that's a day that they, everybody just does a review of something a bit independently. And then you move forward. I've seen a lot of discussion lately about billing because some billing services require you to input data every day. So people feel stuck taking data every session. And then we get into the whole testing versus teaching philosophy of it. But, you know, you can do anecdotal data. You can put a little thing in there. If it requires a percentage, then do your three, five at the beginning and move on and make it quick. But if you have a big group, pick a day, make it a day-to-day, mark in your calendar. Maybe this is going to be data week for all your kids or pick a kid and rotate it every different day. So if you see them two or three times a week, you know, first time it's kid A, second time it's kid Mm -hmm. B, 
and you rotate through and you'll, you know, you're going to compile that data over time. Mm -hmm. Another great way to do fast, but accurate data is with a rubric. Rubrics make my heart so happy. (laughs) So these are awesome for skills where it's not a plus minus, where you can't just put a yes, no, they got it right. Like a speech sound, they either made it correct or they didn't. So things like describing, summarizing, context clues, definitely social skills. It's so many shades it's like, of work. How many times like you're going to like conversational exchanges, like what are you going to percentage that? Like, come on now. <laughs> I know. Have you ever tried to take a tally on topic maintenance? No. No. If you've tried, then you know it doesn't work. So explain a little more to someone who's like, okay, what is a rubric? Because we don't have it in front of us. Like a rubric is more like a rating scale. Like how did they do versus tally marks? Right. So it is like a rating scale. I'm sure we've seen, if you work in a school, you've seen a teacher's rubric and there's many different styles. So there's a support-based style. There's where you're just tracking about how independent they are with a skill. There's a descriptive or narrative. It describes what that skill looks like. And there's also another narrative or descriptive style where it's, here's your overall skill and you have to assign each element of that skill a point value and you have a total at the end. I prefer the latter one where it's maybe a one to four scale and it gives a good description of what it looks like at that level. And like you said, social skills, things that are multi-layered, different, like so many shades of gray that you can't easily just look and say yes or no because you're like, well, if you're looking at turn-taking and conversation, so we're like, okay, well, he did he did take turns, but he also still dominated the conversation a lot. He needed that. He also got off topic a lot. So when you're looking at that aspect, you're like, this is a lot more than give back and forth. Mm-hmm. And so with the rubric, you can track that. But I love it for language. I love it for carryover of generalization, especially for my kids who have speech sounds and we're working on generalizing back to the classroom. I have a articulation rubric. It lays out what it looks like if they don't have it versus a typical student. And I'll go to the teacher like Fridays are my rubric day. I'll find the teacher and they've seen it ahead of time. They know what a rubric is. So it's so fast for them to be like, they got a three. Okay, thanks. And you move on, but you now have teacher input. That's how they read their essays and stuff like that. Like that, the state tests are all like, are all rubric based. Like it's exactly. So there, like, this is something so familiar to them, which I'm always surprised, knowing what I know now about them, why they were never they were never brought up as an option to me in grad school. It was you take your plus minus. There is no other way to do this, and here's what you're going to live and die by. <laughs> so with a rubric, though, I really wish it'd be introduced more because you know you can't track everything, and this gives you that description that you can also then just copy paste and put into your present levels. You know, maybe they started here or there. You can put into your progress reports and you can put into your annual review reports, but it's describing the skill, which is exactly what present levels and parents want to know. And then it's, you got, you know, here's where they started and now here's what it looks like. And you did it in like five seconds. So it's like- That's awesome. And are you able to use rubrics in Swivel? Absolutely. I mean, I would think if rubrics is your jam, I would like to think- So with a rubric, you don't track it like typical data. It's not plus and minus. What I like to do is my rubrics that I have that I use are on a one to four scale. So I will put in the notes. I'll make a little asterisk on the goal in Swivel so it stands out to me. So I know, oh, this is a rubric. I typically just maybe like write rubric at the end of it. So at the end of the session, I look at my rubric for that skill. Say, okay, they got a two today. I'll put a two in the notes and I might even graph it a two out of four. But simply with the understanding of I'm just plotting this so I see it. It's not a person percentage. Mm -hmm. So that's the part that you need to keep in mind, but it still gives you that real-time graph. You can see their progress, but using rubrics is so fast too. So people that work in preschool and kindergarten, when they're like, they need so much attention, 
I can't take a plus minus. I can't write a note. Mm-hmm. I'm, a I'm rubric, climbing on the floor. Like with exactly. Them, like- it's like you are literally climbing the walls or the floors or under our table. You know, you're doing what you need to do to either wrangle them or get them engaged. So using a rubric is going to give you the chance to be present, but then you can go and still take acceptable, appropriate data for the skill you're looking at. One thing I do want to like quick backtrack to. When you're writing your goal, not everything is 80%. It's like two confessions of an 80 percenter right here. <laughs> when we're in grad school, it's like everything's 80%. That's like your golden standard right there. And for so long, I never even dared to dream about writing a goal that was less than 80%. Be like, oh my gosh, the like the percentage police are gonna come get me. But it's all about you know going back to the baseline, seeing where they started and what is reasonable growth. If you have a student with a baseline of 20%, or something, they're not going to be at 80 in a year. Most likely, they're not going to have that type of growth. Mm-hmm. You know, some people might know like, oh, maybe if it's a speech down and you know the student and you kind of see that growth already happening, you're like, maybe they will. Who knows? But you have to base it on how you know the student, how well they work. Is this a brand new skill? Is this building off of something? But when you're writing a goal, it's like typically it shouldn't be more than you know an extra 20% or above it. And if they surpass it, fantastic. I've had several times where kids, I've written a goal for 40% and they've blown it out of the water to 75. I've also had kids where they didn't make it and it was 30. And I was like, okay, I overestimated this one. So true. That it's all about going back to that baseline and moving back to what that child is capable of, not Mm -hmm. what you're hoping they can achieve. Right. (laughs) But that's what it's all about when we're the whole purpose, like goals drive everything. So you need to be very thoughtful exactly about, is it functional? Is it academic? How does it relate? Does it have that purpose? And is it achievable? So true. Any last bit of advice for someone who is still feeling a little overwhelmed and unsure in the goal market? (laughs) You're not alone at all. So, you know, take the time. If you're an SLP and you've been an SLP for like 20 years, there's nothing wrong with looking up, you know, hey, what's the new info say about SMART goals or goal formatting or whatnot? I'd say definitely ask for help. Ask someone to proofread it. And then uh, you can always send me a direct message. I'm more than happy to chat goals. You'll probably get sucked into a long goal conversation with me. And my last bit of advice is there's a lot of goal banks out there. Oh, yeah. And those are just frameworks. Exactly. Don't use that and say, okay, I have to use just these or these must work for my individual student. You can use them for some wording examples, Uh but really look at the evaluation results. You have to look at the big picture, not just this is what a child's supposed to do. Right. I love it how you put it as a framework. You shouldn't just copy and paste a goal from, you know, a goal bank and be like, I'm done. Great. Woohoo. You know, change the kid's name and you're on. You know, it's a framework. You shouldn't copy and paste it because then if you keep that same wording in all your IEPs and say your school district gets audited and they pull two IEPs from you and they say, wait a minute, we say the exact same thing. Guess what? Then it means your IEP isn't individualized and most likely, most likely you're going to slap on the hand, but it can (laughs) cost your district. They can do a deeper dive, a deeper audit that they were trying to avoid. And when it all comes back, it's going to be, this is what triggered it. So change some wording, make it specific for that student in a certain way, whether it's changing the prompting or presentation. But yeah, I love how you put it. It's a framework. You can Mm -hmm. copy and paste it for a framework, then paint your own picture. Because I'll give an example. My IEP system has a goal bank and I don't even look at it. Oh no. Like we have the ability to click like custom goals and Mm -hmm. I just go straight to there because so many times I see goals given to me that were 
from that framework and they were meant to be edited. There are like a long, laundry list of goals. It's like, mm-hmm. that's impossible to be doing all of that. Like, what is it? Kiss? Keep it simple. <laughs> keep it, is it keep it simple, stupid? And it was yeah, like yeah. a little insulting. I like the message though. That's why I said, just kiss. <laughs> but I like what you said there about the goals. It's, we see goal smashing all the time. And that's when you've taken kind of like that. They have three skills smushed into one goal. But that's the objective. And you're like, no, no, that should be three separate objectives. Because all you've done in that point is set up the student for failure. Mm -hmm. So say if they achieve two skills and they don't get the second one, guess what? That doesn't really matter. Especially with articulation, you have to break it up. And like, it's not initial in words, phrases, sentences. It's initial in words or initial in phrases. And especially for like your comprehension students, you might have kids in a group together with all different comprehension needs they're going to get to learn from each other. So they, Johnny, I just using John, like Johnny doesn't necessarily need to have that summarizing goal like Susie does, but he might indirectly get some experience. Yes. Like he might, he might be practicing it for Susie while before he gets to answer whatever he is working on. So keep that in mind that our students might still get exposed to other things and not so closed off from some other objectives. Right. They're not sitting in little soundproof booths while you work with the other two kids. You know, they're hearing everything. They're getting that exposure. They're building questions off each other sometimes, which is so nice to see. But yeah, don't feel like I have to work on this goal with this kid. You know, we can't, you know, sometimes they cross over. Mm -hmm. It's okay. (laughs) It's okay. So Maureen, where can everyone learn more about you and what you have to offer? So you can find me at the Speechable SLP on Facebook, on Instagram, um, I'm probably most active on Instagram. I can send me an email at thespeechbubbleslp at gmail.com. You can be there on my website, but I'm all around. Send your questions my way. I will total data nerd at heart. I love to answer them. I love it. I love Because that's so not my jam. I come to you for all those things. <laughs> and it's hilarious because <laughs> I hated math in school. I hated it. But I'm going to end this episode with a joke like I always do. How is a baseball team similar to a pancake? I don't know. How is it similar, Hallie? They both need a good batter. (laughs) Use that if you have students working on multiple meeting goals. (laughs) There you go. Until next week, guys, stay out of trouble. Do you love incorporating literacy-based activities in your speech room? Are you looking for more storybooks to add to your collection that are perfect for speech and language therapy? Did you know that I wrote a children's book? Ella Bella Just Can't Tell You is perfect for working on sequencing, describing, WH questions, and more. It is perfect for students with word-finding difficulties too. Check it out on Amazon by going to speechtimefun.com slash Ella Thanks for tuning in for another episode of SLP Coffee Talk. You can find all of the links and information mentioned in this episode at www.speechtimefun.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any future episodes. While you are there, it would mean the world to me if you would take a few seconds and leave me an honest review. See you next week with another episode full of fun and inspiration from one SLP to another. Have fun, guys.